Abolition. 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 Uh, as of this date, 30, maybe this is a totally arbitrary number, 30 to 60 days from now, anyone who is in the state of Iowa that is not here legally and cannot demonstrate their legal status to the satisfaction of the local and state authorities here in the state of Iowa become property of the state of Iowa. And we have a job for you. And we start using uh, uh, compelled labor, the people who are here illegally, would therefore be owned by the state and become an asset of the state rather than a liability, and we start inventing jobs for them. Well, how would you apply that logic to what Donald Trump is trying to do, to get Mexico paid for the border uh, and for the wall? Same way. If you have come across the uh, the border illegally, we get, get then give them another 60-day guideline. You need to go home and leave this jurisdiction. And if you don't, you become property of the United States. And guess what? You will be building a wall. We will compel your labor. You would belong to the these United States. You show up without an invitation. You get to be a, an asset. You get to be a construction worker. This is Fred. Good morning, Fred. I, I, your idea is clever on the face, but it sounds an awful lot like slavery. I don't. I think it goes over like a let alone. So. Uh, no, I just you just read the Constitution, Fred. What is well, what does the Constitution say about the slavery? Well, you know, I don't have my Constitution in front of me, and, and uh, you know, and, and like I say, it sounds like a clever idea, and maybe it maybe you could make it uh, uh, put it in, in action, but I think the fallout would be so significant. Uh, you know, I think what, what, would be, what would be the nature of the fallout? Well, I think everybody would believe it sounds like slavery. Well, what's wrong with slavery? So are, are you going to house all these uh, uh, people that have chosen to be indentured? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely, in a minimal fashion. Uh, we would uh, take a lesson from Sheriff Arpaio down in Arizona, uh, put up um, a, a tent village. We feed uh, and water these, uh, these new assets. We give them minimal uh, shelter, minimal nutrition, and uh, offer them the opportunity to work for the benefit of the taxpayers of the state of Iowa. All they have to do to avoid the servitude is to leave. So, so you think I'm just pulling your leg. I am not. 13. Wait, wait, wait. How, how did Lord keep doing the
13th Amendment. The mental shackles. They want to amend it. We're breaking them shackles. The 13th yeah. Amendment. Yeah. They want to amend it. Yeah. Let's get educated. Let's do it. Let's do it. So they can never take it. They can't take it. Let's get educated. Let's do it. So they can never take it. The 13th Amendment. They want to them change. They want to amend it. They want us bound. Let's get educated. Let's break them chains. So they can never take it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get educated. So they can never take it. Let's get educated. So they can never take it. Abolition. You just heard on-air statements from cool radio talk show host Jan Mickelson. He's a frequent interviewer of Republican presidential candidates campaigning in Iowa. Yes, you heard him correctly. What's wrong with slavery? That was followed by 13th Amendment featuring Cage, C-A-Y-J. Do me a quick favor and click the link to, our, to that song on our Facebook page and give a like and a comment for that young brother. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. I'm your host, Max Parthas. Brother Yusuf will not be joining us this evening. He is still dealing with a family crisis, and we ask that you keep Yusuf and his family in your prayers. Brother Tag Hartman is here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center doing volunteer work, and he'll help me hold it down again. Peace, Brother Tag. No doubt. Tonight we bring clarity to confusion by answering the question, what is slavery? Is it mental? Is it economic? Is it physical? Is it a nine-to-five dead-end job? Is it when you're forced to wear face masks, when you're told to stay home in a global pandemic, when you're forced to work for free? We'll get into all of that and more. Also, Tag will be reviewing an article by Scott Howe, loosely called Slavery as Punishment and the Neglected Clause in the 13th Amendment. After hearing our discussions about Marsha Ballard's new book, Slavery as Punishment, he dug deeper into her source material. We'll talk about the badges and incidents of slavery, disseminate news, offer views, and of course, play awesome music and poetry. Hang on for the next two hours, grab a pen and paper. The master class on modern slavery abolition has already begun. So uh, here we go, man. Let me put the mic over here so we can share it like that. You know, we're up in the fall cup, the abolitionist section. Uh, it's been a heck of a week, as always. So much has been going on. Uh, I'm happy to say that my nephew, Tiny, has been found. Uh, I know for the, most of you, you're like, what are you talking about, Max? Uh, my nephew, Tiny, was missing for a week. So everybody was going nuts trying to find him. They called the cops, got the cops involved. Half the family became detectives and went out searching and looking for clues, like, you know, uh, like it was Scooby-Doo up in here. <laughs> and uh, they were about to wild out. And then just about an hour ago, right, we got the news that he, he's all right. He's all right. So it's been a, a, a roller coaster over here about that. Um, we spent the last couple of days, Tag and I, he's kind of, you know, being a fly on the wall and, and working side by side with me on some of these projects. Uh, what do you think so far, man? 
PCAC and the work that happens there? Oh, well, one would expect, and as you know, just uh, so much strong and important work you know, flourishing from, uh, from through this space, and it's just been, you know, excellent to be able to, to peep out of the space, you know, um, live and direct, as it were, and uh, just very much encouraged with what y'all have going here, so, you know, just uh, trying to peep out and, and, you know, do whatever I can uh, in that regard to to just continue and, and to support because it's very, very much um, well needed and, and highly vital work. So, thanks, brother. Thanks. Um, the intro, uh, you know, we always start with a bang, and that was a hell of a bang right there. Uh, Jan Mickelson is a very popular, or was a very popular, right wing conservative Republican talk show host. He interviewed all of the uh, 2004. 16 presidential candidates, including Donald Trump, and he made these statements on his radio program. And no one ever held him the task amongst all those candidates. Uh, you know, it makes you think that maybe they were looking at it as some sound advice. You know, let's use slavery on the immigrants. We're doing it on the Negroes. Might as well do it on the immigrants too, right? And here's how we can do it, why we should justify it. And even pointed out the 13th Amendment with the nerve to say, because the dude was like, yo, that's like slavery. People be flipping out. What's wrong with slavery? Have we heard that before? What's wrong with slavery? Teach the good. What would they say? Teach the bad, the ugly, and the good about slavery. We've seen it in schools where they've had questionnaires, what was good about slavery, as if, you know, it was something at all good about it. Well, first of all, we want to be certain about what we're talking about. Because the man used the word slavery, right? People use the word slavery all the freaking time. And more often than not, they use metaphors or synonyms or something from Greek philosophers or Roman historians. Or they're talking about uh, involuntary servitude. Or, as I said earlier, just face facts. But we're slavery abolitionists. And what we're looking to do is end the exception clauses within the 13th Amendment itself and also within state constitutions. And to provide constitutional protection from slavery and involuntary servitude in the states that have none at this point, which is uh, about 25 of them have no language whatsoever. And, and what is it that we're fighting against? What do we want to abolish, right? That needs to be defined because, you know, you could ask different people what is slavery and you're likely going to get different answers depending on who you ask. Uh, some people even compare chattel slavery to Roman slavery or Greek, uh, Greek slavery, or even to Hebrew slavery. And uh, that's just not the case. Chattel slavery is unique in American history. So let's get right into it and answer that question off the bat, all right? What we narrowed it down to, considering our requirements, was we needed something that the United States has signed on to, uh, where, you know, they've said, yes, we agree with this, and that other nations as well have signed on to as an agreement of a definition, legal definition, of slavery, and also how you can determine if or not something is slavery. And I've taken counsel with some wise people, uh, constitutional attorneys, United Nations representatives, uh, Queen of Benin, just the other day, yes, uh, on, on a committee for the United Nations, uh, spoke with her, 
my brother Dennis Bebo, and he also was speaking with other people to try to help to clear this up. Uh, so we need to be able to address this on a legal basis. That's very important. So when we talk about slavery and we talk about abolishing something, then legally, what is this thing that we're abolishing? And what we narrowed it down to was the Bellagio Harvard Guideline on the Legal Parameters of Slavery. I'm just going to go ahead into this, and we're going to try to get through all of it before the evening is out. We'll probably break it up into parts. Um so let me start out with the first. We, the members of the Research Network on the Legal Parameters of Slavery, recognizing that there has been a lack of legal clarity with regards to the interpretation of the definition of slavery in international law, conscious that the spouting point for understanding that definition is Article 1, parentheses 1, of the 1926 Slavery Convention, which reads, slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. Let me read that once again. Slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attached to the right of ownership are exercised. Recalling that this definition is reproduced in substance in Article 7, a of the 1956 Supplementary Convention on the Abolition of Slavery, the slave trade and institutions and practices similar to slavery. Also noting that the 1926 definition of slavery is once again reproduced in substance in the definition of enslavement found in Article 7.2c of the 1998 Statute of the International Criminal Court and developed in more detail in the secondary legislation of the court in its elements of crimes, bearing in mind the provisions in international human rights law regarding slavery within the 1948 Universal Declaration and 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, as well as the provisions regarding slavery in regional human rights conventions of the African European, and inter-American systems. Considering the inclusion of slavery as an enumerated type of human exploitation in both the 2000 United Nations Palermo Protocol on Trafficking in Persons and the 2005 Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings, mindful of the pronouncements and case law related to slavery of international, regional, and domestic courts. Having met to consider the issue at the 2010 symposium entitled The Perimeters of Slavery at the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Conference Center in Bellagio, Italy, having further deliberated in 2011 at a meeting under the auspices of the Harriet Tubman Institute for Research on the Global Migrations of African Peoples, York University, Canada, Canada, and came together once more at the 2011 symposium entitled The Legal Perimeters of Slavery, Historical to the Contemporary at Harvard University, under the auspices of the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice, Harvard Law School, the Harvard Sociology Department, the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute. Recommend the following guidelines 
related to the legal parameters of slavery. So I'm going to stop right there because that just tells you that, you know, in the legalese, they took all this into consideration, the power, the, the weight of what they were taking on to define what exactly is slavery. And it says guideline number one, the legal definition. The legal, legal definition of slavery in international laws found in Article 1 of the 1926 Slavery Convention, which reads, slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom all, any or all of the powers attached to the right of ownership are exercised. So let's get into that right away. Tag, comments on that? Yeah, there seems to be this continuous reference back to ownership and ownership being somewhere near the essence of the definition of slavery that uh, we're seeing here. Yes, yes. Um, you know, a lot of times we kind of point at prison labor as the core identifier of slavery in the United States and, and, and worldwide with prison labor. Because uh, we do say that China's using prison labor too, and that's slavery, right? But that's not the only thing. Because when you say slave labor, remember, the labor has a word that comes before it, slave. And that's the root of it right there, ownership. If you, what do they say? In any, uh, in, uh, whether any or whole. Let me read it one more time over here where it says, any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership. So you can uh, portray yourself as having power, just one power over part of, one part of someone's life. I control your Tuesdays. You, I own you on Tuesdays. You know what I mean? That, you could be just that, and that still would qualify. <clears throat> All right. So, guideline number two. The exercise of powers attaching to the right of ownership. In cases of slavery, the exercise of the powers attaching to the right of ownership should be understood as co constituting control over, over a person in such a way as to significantly deprive that person of his or her individual liberty with the intent of exploitation through the use, management, profit, transfer, or disposal of that person. Usually, this exercise will be supported by and obtained through means such as violent force, deception, and or coercion. Now, I can already start seeing the connections right there to modern-day prison for profit, leasing for profit, right on through that 13th Amendment exception clause. What about you, Ted? Right there, uh, in agreement of that, as far as the observations are concerned, I see just right there at the end some, some key words and uh, the actions that go behind those words, such as violent force, such as deception, and such as coercion, and so uh, all of those are deployed against um, those of us who, who find ourselves behind the, these walls um, sanctioned by the 13th Amendment Exception Clause as slavery. Right, exactly. And you know, since the 13th Amendment says key moment where you become property is duly convicted. So once you've been duly convicted, uh, how is it that people get to that point of duly conviction, right? What's the number one way people end up duly convicted and the moment happens? Well, those are through plea bargains. 
uh, as regards the 13th Amendment exception clause, as regards uh, the carceral uh, system in general. One of the things that came to mind for me is a quote <clears throat> that came from Officer Patrick Lundgren of Lever Correctional Institute in Bridgesville, South Carolina. And he said, you control every part of their life. And if you're doing it right, they can't do anything to you. Isn't that the type of control tantamount to possession when you say you control every part of their life? They can't go to the bathroom without you. They can't get medical attention without you. Uh, they can't talk without you. Like, literally, they can't walk without you. And if they think without you, they're subject to punishment and retribution. Uh, all the way up to and including torture. And in prisons, especially, you have the kangaroo courts inside who suddenly can determine how many more years have added to your sentencing. I remember a few years back when we organized the one of the largest prison slave labor work strikes in history. Uh, the brothers inside got a hold of contraband cell phones and use that to organize and share that information on Facebook. And then the prison found out and gave them a year for every post. So one brother had over 30 posts. Guess what he got? Over 30 years given by a warden in a prison and not in a court. He could have been on his last year for all we know, and suddenly, poof, 30 years gone. And that was just the least of the uh, uh, what they would do to him. Uh, they also took off seven years of commissary and seven years of, of being able to uh, get the things that he needs. They took another guy's phone calls off for life. Uh, the punishment was extreme beyond anything that suited what we, what they had done and trying to organize for uh, the rights to be recognized as human beings. I remember in South Carolina, they had a massacre there, killing, uh, I think it was seven people that was killed. And it took hours for them to get everything under control. And it began all over the conditions, Eighth Amendment violations documented by the DOJ. Anything you want to add to that, Tech? Well, not, not necessarily to add to that. Essentially, that's, that's what it sounds like. The, the, the parallels and the continuities are uh, ongoing, and they continue uh, in their relevance, questions of communications, telecommunications, just generally uh, part of part of what is clearly not wanted by these systems that engage in uh, human trafficking and enslavement uh, is more information from the perspective of those who are suffering under it. That's what we see time and time and again. That 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 kind of information, that kind of clarity, and those experiences are, uh, you know, kept kept at bay to whatever degree they, they can do so. Yes, sir. Well, I want to make uh, sure that everybody remembers, if you call in and you have a question or a comment, press one on your keypad so we know it's you, because people call in just for listening using their phones. So press number one on your keypad so that we know you have a question or comment. The number, if you do want to participate in this conversation, it's 515-605-9814. 515-605-9814. All right, let's go ahead and read 
guideline number four says guideline number three references it, right? Number four says, further examples of power attaching to the right of ownership where a person controls another, such as he or she would control a thing only. Such possession makes possible the exercise of any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership. Collectively, the exercise of any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership may serve to indicate the presence of control of a person tantamount to possession, and so provide evidence of slavery. The following are further examples of powers attached to the right of ownership. And then they go with A, buying, selling, or transferring a person. Before I go into the further description, we already know that through, through uh, prison stocks and jail bonds, you can buy and sell people because that's how it works. You know what I mean? They try to play it off like you're investing in the prisons, but the prisons are useless without people. So you really invest in the fact that people are going to fill those prisons, like that little clip we heard from the GEO group when they were selling the Clinton Correctional uh, Facility and talking about how you're going to have, no matter what your, uh, what your industry is, what you're looking for, you will have a steady supply of product coming through this pipeline here in America. And the product they were talking about was people because it was a prison they were auctioning on. So buying and selling is definitely part of the process here, and transferring is certainly also involved in that, too, because we have human trafficking within our prison systems. Uh, an example would be Eloy, Arizona, right? So they got this prison in Eloy, Arizona, that when it was first built, basically was built to house only Hawaiians. So if you broke a law in Hawaii, they would send you to a for-profit prison in freaking Arizona. <laughs> and, you know, Vermont does the same thing. Vermont ships prisons over to Michigan and Mississippi. And Mississippi's a hellhole with their prisons. And they send in Vermonters to this hellhole in Mississippi where they never committed any crime. So this is human trafficking. All right, let's continue. Buying, selling, or otherwise transferring a person may provide evidence of slavery. Have establishing control tantamount to possession. The act of buying, selling, or transferring that person will be an act of slavery, period. Evidence of slavery may also be found in similar transactions, such as bartering, exchanging, or giving or receiving a person as a gift where control tantamount to possession has been established. Wow. Think long and hard about certain circumstances today that would be the equivalent of giving a person as a gift, right? All right, and B, using a person. Using a person may provide evidence of slavery, having established control tantamount to possession. The act of using that person will be an act of slavery. Now, you got to have that control, like the CEO said out there in South Carolina, if you control all of their lives, and you're doing it right, every moment of their lives, they can't do nothing to you. So you have to have this control tantamount to possession to achieve this. Evidence of such use of a person may include the derived benefit from the services or labor of that person. In such cases, a person might be used by working for little or no pay. 
utilized for sexual gratification or used by providing a service. And before we go into C, let's make some commentary on what we just heard right there.
thousands of prisoners out there working for what a dollar a day and a potential day off if they risk their life. All right, profiting from the use of a person, deep. Profiting from the use of a person may provide evidence of slavery. Having established control tantamount to possession, the act of profiting from the use of that person will be an act of slavery. Evidence of profiting from the use of a person may include cases where a person is mortgaged, lent for profit, or used as collateral. Evidence of profiting from the use of a person may also include making money or deriving or yeah, or deriving any other kind of income or benefit from the use of the person, such as the use of an agricultural cultural worker in a situation of slavery, where the profit from the picking of a crop is taken or received by another, whether in the form of wages or of the harvest. Uh, so that's D. Um, and we got one, two, D, D. We've got two more in this uh, category. So let's go on moving to C. And if you feel like you need to stop this, you want to make a comment on something, let me know, all right? Absolutely. And let me check the phone lines real quick. Nope. All right. Remember to press one if you have something. So, transferring a person to an heir or successor, transferring a person to an heir or a successor may provide evidence of slavery, having established control over a person, tantamount to possession. The act of willing that person to a child or other heirs or successor will be an act of slavery. Evidence of such transferring of a person may include a case of inheritance, where a woman on the death of her husband is deemed to be inherited by another person. Evidence of such a transferring of a person may also include the conveying of a status or condition of a person to that of a successive generation, such as from mother to daughter. So they're obviously talking about in some nations where if you die, uh, the brother takes on the role of husband. The next oldest brother takes on the role of husband will be an example of that. And also the antebellum period where you were born a slave and your children were born a slave and you died a slave. And literally, they will put you into the will, much like uh, Martha Washington had in her will with the, I think it was 90 or so people that she claimed to own. 83, actually. 83. All right. And F, disposal, mistreatment or neglect of a person. Disposing of a person following his or her exploitation may provide evidence of slavery. Have an established control over a person tantamount to possession. The act of disposing of a person will be an act of slavery. Mistreatment or neglect of a person may provide evidence of slavery. Have an established control tantamount to possession. Such disregard may lead to the physical or psychological exhaustion of a person and ultimately to his or her destruction. Accordingly, the act of bringing about such exhaustion will be an act of slavery. Evidence of such mistreatment or neglect may include sustained physical and psychological abuse, whether calculated or indiscriminate, or the imposition of physical demands that severely curtail the capacity of the human body to sustain itself or function effectively. First thing that comes into my mind, man, is Hugo Pinnell's daughter. I was speaking with her the other day, courtesy of Sister Jamelia Lamb. And she was telling me about her father spending 46 years in solitary confinement. I'm pretty sure that 46 years being tortured certainly fits the description there, right? And he's not alone because Albert Woodfox was 43 years 
and as many others that have uh, as many close to as many years as that in solitary confinement, which the United Nations has all agreed that this is torture. All right, so that takes care of everything up to guidelines number four. So with that, I want to take a pause. Um, let me check the phone lines again to make sure I'm not missing anybody. Remember, press one if you want to uh, give a question or comment. Uh, otherwise, we won't know it. And the call-in number is 515-605-9814. Now, in addition to this uh, description and definition of slavery, there's also the issue of badges and incidents of slavery. Because once you identify these things, we're, we're in agreement. This is what we're trying to abolish, this thing right here. And here are all of the elements of it as proof and evidence of control tantamount to owning a person, right? We have all of that there. Uh, in addition to that, there's effects that happen. Many misidentify them as legacy of slavery or leftovers from slavery, but they're actually called badges and incidents of slavery. And Congress has the ability to make laws that would change and address those things directly, according to Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. In order to help you understand that more, I want to play a clip that we have, and it's called Badges and Incidents of Slavery. It's Professor William Carter, Jr., and he's from the, uh, a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh. And he breaks down that, as well as a moment in time, where we literally have the birth of America, the second founding of America. I think I'll let him explain it all. You're listening to Abolition Today. I'm Max Parthas. I'm here with Brother Tag Harmon today. Peace. And we'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. Today. In terms of what I plan to focus on, I'm going to possess to talk about two of my articles um, that I guess kind of span a spectrum of my writing about race and the law. So the first one is called a 13th Amendment Framework for Combating Racial Profiling. And that one, I think, was published maybe in 2004, 2005. It was one of my first big articles. And that one um, looks at the issue of racial profiling through the lens of the 13th Amendment and through a lesser known aspect of the 13th Amendment that it prohibited not only literal slavery, but also what its framers called the badges and incidents of slavery. Those modern day conditions that are a legacy of uh, slavery or that uh, were an outgrowth of it. And so in that article, I argue that a wide scale system of uh, criminal suspicion based upon skin color is a badger incident of slavery because it mirrors, even if not driven by the same purpose, the kind of racialized control over autonomy and freedom of movement that black slaves as well as all free blacks were subject to during slavery. So I'll talk a little bit about that one piece, and I know that David and Jalila um, will have a lot to contribute there because of their own work about race and the criminal law. The other piece is much more recent. In fact, it's still a draft. Um, it's been accepted by the Texas Law Review, but hasn't been published yet. It'll come out next year. And it's about uh, freedom of speech and slavery. So the, the idea of that one, it, again, kind of drawing on the legal history of slavery, is that in my view, as well as in this view of many other scholars, we have two distinct constitutional regimes. There's the 
framing to Civil War regimes, like the 1787 to 1865 Constitution, which I'll call the original founding. And then there's what's referred to as the second founding, the post-Civil War constitutional amendments, as well as federal civil rights statutes that the people at the time who adopted them thought of as representing a second American revolution, a second founding of the nation in turning away from a society based on racial slavery to one who at least in its fundamental charter would be based upon freedom and equality for all persons, not merely a subset. In constitutional doctrine, as you'll recall, the cases, and indeed I would say probably most professors, spend very little time talking about the second founding as a new constitutional moment. We talk a lot about specific provisions from the post-Civil War Constitution, right? So you spend a ton of time on equal protection, due process, privileges and immunities, etc. But in general, when we talk about the pre-Civil War Constitution, we tend to act as if the second founding moment never happened. For purposes of this paper, I contend that courts tend to act as if what freedom of speech meant in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified is exactly the same thing from an original meaning perspective as what it should mean today. And my point is actually not so much to kind of claim or disclaim originalism. It is simply if you're going to analyze the Constitution from an originalist perspective, there is another originalist moment where the original framers' view was modified, elaborated upon, and in some cases rejected by the second framing. And so the article in one sense is kind of a theoretical plea that we take the post-Civil War Constitution seriously as a second founding moment. The second more specific part is if you accept that frame, which certainly not everyone would, what might it mean for how we interpret some specific constitutional provisions? And one of those is the First Amendment. So the, I think, kind of um, most novel contribution that the article makes is that it looks at freedom of speech, not just through the lens of the first founding's framers, nor exclusively through the lens of the second founding's framers, but that actually foregrounds the views of enslaved persons themselves and asks, what did freedom of speech mean to them in a condition of slavery? What denial of their free speech rights did they experience? What would they have hoped or expected the post-Civil War vision of freedom of speech to entail? And I argue that as part of the constitutional polity that would help uh, us understand the general public meaning of freedom of speech under the post-Civil War Constitution, that the voices of enslaved persons have been almost entirely ignored in constitutional interpretation. So I draw from a lot of first-person slave narratives where the slaves talk about um, their experiences with being denied freedom of speech and talk about what they think it should mean uh, under the reconstructed constitution. Um, so I'll be talking about those in the talk and you know, hopefully folks will find it interesting. Um, but I think what all of my 13th Amendment work, including this most recent piece, are trying to do is to show there is a different constitutional legal history that has largely remained untold, right? That particularly the um, post-Civil War Constitution was one that was about equal dignity and equal worth and about freedom and liberty in many aspects. Some of them were liberty of body and movement, which is the 
this racial profiling piece, some of them are liberty of mind and conscience, right, which is the um, First Amendment piece. But the animating impulse is the same, um, that, you know, there's a, a long debate about whether our Constitution was originally pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Um, and my point, I guess, the intervention I make in my work is that in seeking to answer that question, we have to look at our Constitution as, as a whole. And too often our courts and lawyers act as if the post-Civil War Constitution didn't really happen. Abolition. 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 Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and today, uh, Tag Harmon. Um, so he broke it down to a degree there and explained how that second founding should be really a, a point for us, but instead it was not. Uh, also the badges and incidents of slavery. He used the First Amendment as an example. Uh, I would like to know if he's tried that with the Sixth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment, which we know are being violated habitually uh, without any kind of uh, anything happened because of that. So uh, I'm curious. I'll, I'll look further into that. What do you think, Jack? Well, I thought that the question of originalism was mad intriguing. That's also an issue in the article that I want to discuss at some point, if minutes allow, and um, and that seems like one area of overlap between uh, the, the the questions being addressed uh, just now on audio and uh, some of what Scott Howe seems to be looking to get at as far as uh, originalist interpretations of the Constitution and how that might be interpreted in different periods. Over the past uh, couple of months, we've been talking about Marsha Ballard and her book, Enslavement as Punishment. She also did a video where she discusses her book, and we used a few of her clips last week. You heard the clip where she made the proposal that uh, part of, well, like our Miranda rights, when you're initially arrested, not only should you be uh, informed that you have a right to remain silent, you have a right uh, to attorney, anything you say it can, it can and will be used against you in a court of law. Not only should they tell you that, but they should also tell you that if you should be convicted of the crime you're being arrested for, you may end up as a slave, losing all rights and privileges as citizens. And we, last week, was like, damn, imagine, I, I can only imagine the, the face of the first person to hear that said to them. You know what I mean? Crime would drop real quick, wouldn't it? And I'm gonna be a what? Real, and it's a it's a very uh, practical approach to some of the challenges that face. And certainly, uh, a change like that does not represent, you know, um, the abolition of slavery, for example. But it certainly represents uh, a measure that. Um, has a common sense value to it that that could help us to defend against the various um, and multifarious tentacles of prison slavery. Uh, you dug a little deeper in her sources, which was uh, uh, How, uh, what's the name? David How? Yes, uh, Scott How. Scott How, Scott How. You, and you found Scott How, which she had uh, pointed to about, a, looked like about eight or nine times in her uh, book there. And you read some of his work. Want to tell us what you found? Absolutely. 
uh, off of the thread of originalism and, and how that relates to what Scott Howe is looking to outline here. This is from, as has been pointed toward uh, Scott Howe's Slavery as Punishment, Original Public Meaning, Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause in the 13th Amendment. And um, uh, the sister, Marcia Ballard, um, draws from this text, among others, in uh, her recent Enslavement as Punishment, which uh, sounds, and, and from what I've seen, is uh, extremely uh, strong and, and, and uh, thoroughly supportive. And, um, and, and so part of what Scott Howe here is, is pointing toward is that uh, you can't claim, according to Howe, that there was some lack of knowledge or information at the time that the 13th Amendment was passed and ratified and uh, became law and the exception clause included, that uh, there would have been plenty of public information and public knowledge of what all that might entail, being enslavement. And so part of what Howe is uh, demonstrating here or looking to show through the history is that the public meaning, the original public meaning, should be how we derive the intended meaning, quote unquote, or what uh, this constitutional language, this amendment language would have meant. And that from an originalist standpoint, it's, it's less, uh, there's less point in trying to interpret the intent of those uh, framers, if you will, or these early, uh, th those who were framing the language of the constitution of, and of these amendments, but that it should go off of the public meaning, the original public meaning, and that, <clears throat> and that there was plenty of um, information about uh, conditions of enslavement at this time to indicate that it would have some of these uh, abhorrent consequences, you know, uh, abhorrent being just one of the descriptors used to, to point toward forms of enslavement and, and the substance of enslavement over these past centuries through the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. And uh, so, so that's, that's more or less the, the thrust of the argument from what I can uh, glean I, I, as not a, a legal, you know, um, uh, no, I'm no kind of lawyer or anything to that effect, but uh, it struck me as with, with regard to the legal scholarship that I've seen, um, it struck me as more involved in questions of the ongoing relevance of the 13th Amendment Clause through uh, 1865, through the postbellum period. Um, it, it, it expressed that more than I'm used to in a lot of these, um, th this legal scholarship that, that I've uh, come across. And so, um, so that's, that's for uh, just one example and just pointing toward the overlap. Questions of um, badges and incidents of, of slavery uh, do arise in this text as well. And uh, full quote, uh, there's a section C, the punishment clause. This is on page 992 of Scott Howe's article. And it starts to ask some questions rooted in um, what the focus of the original debate was around the 13th Amendment. And so uh, the quote goes, the focus of the original debate about the 13th Amendment was not on its punishment clause, but on its central prohibition 
and a second section on enforcement. And then it goes on to say, did the amendment prohibit only a, quote, condition of enforced compulsory service or also certain, quote, badges, incidents, and indicia, end quote, that accompanied the racially-based chattel slavery that had existed in the antebellum South? And um, that section continues um, going into some of the potential interpretations uh, Subsequent to, if, 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 if we're talking about badges and incidents, and also indicia, which is similar, speaking of index, uh, uh, questions of index and, and you know, the, the um, pointing toward that that, that would indicate um, badges and incidents. And so asking, you know, is this what we're talking about as well with this 13th Amendment and its, and its, uh, and its uh, exception clause? And so... Part of what's pointing toward is the fact that um, at the time, uh, how the argument is that available information around what slavery consisted of was so, uh, so, so um, uh, plentiful, you know, that, um, and even citing, for example, you know, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's work and Uncle Tom's Cabin and such, and the, the, the growing public availability of, of, of descriptions and, and testimony around what enslavement entails, you know, um, it's, it's, it's pointing toward the fact that by using such clear language as slavery, as well as indentured servitude, and having them both included in that particular clause, uh, there would have been no, there, there, there clearly was not a great deal of question at the time as to what slave, slavery could constitute. And, um, and that it was the lack of challenge around that as compared to, for example, um, this other question, the initial focus according to Howe, which was on uh, the second section on enforcement and this question of Congress, that, that Congress is, is the one that's entitled to enforce this, um, at least according to Howe's research, is the one that was much more well-documented as to the debate and argument um, at the time of, of its passing. And so, and so it goes on. It talks about the, um, what is termed the dual character of the slave according to, and it uses that language, quote, the slave. That is certainly not my, you know, um, language or, or how I would describe um, any such individuals uh, whatsoever. But its language um, speaks to the, uh, the, the slave had a dual character caused tension in how the law viewed the, quote, master-slave relationship. Um, and, and so that, too, was an interesting section as far as, um, you know, how uh, different concepts of enslavement have, um, have, have tried to approach this question. Uh, so this so-called dual character, uh, we're talking about the, the the belief or the uh, legal construct, the, the legal fiction, as it refers to at another point in this article, of a dual character of a person and property. So that, that a slave, quote unquote, was both person and property, and that this dual character created all kinds of uh, issues, but also led to a lot of ambiguity around the law with, with respect to those who are enslaved. Like being three-fifths human in the regarding the number of representatives in Congress. Yeah, 
was there more to that? Uh, there, there was. I'm happy to to pause there and. Uh, completely, you know, on 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 your call. If you right. if you want to address a few more of them, I have some other spots uh, quoted from the article. Well, these this is all supporting information to what we're saying here today. We're identifying what slavery is, and also the badges and incidents of slavery. And uh, he mentioned a, a few of those in there as well. Uh, so this is valuable knowledge. It's one of the reasons why we call it a master class, right? <laughs> you know, and we're learning out loud right, right along with you. There are no courses for this. So there's very few places where you can get all this and try to make sense of it. So today we're all about what is slavery, like legally what is slavery. And it has to include the issues that surround slavery, the badges and incidents of slavery, especially since Congress has that power. As you said, it's well documented. That's where most of the power to control this thing right now is. Uh, but we have to call it what it is in order to be able to point out these incidents and badges. You can't point out incidents and badges of mass incarceration. That's just not how it works. You don't point out incidents and badges of policing for profit or prison for profit. It has to be what? Incidents and badges of slavery. And so uh, it's important that we identify these things properly and hold them under the legal content because accountability is important. Accountability is key. As a matter of fact, this uh, June 12th, I will be part of a panel discussion with Dr. Joy James and Dr. Jared Paul about accountability. Um, I think I have the link up here for you. Uh, but that'll be June 12th. So look at our page there, Abolition Today on Facebook, for more information for that. Uh, you definitely going to want to hear that because I don't get to often talk about accountability. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to having that opportunity. All right, so we want to finish off the Bellagio Harvard document and go through the final parts of it. We're about 60% through it. But before we do that, uh, now that we have a better perspective with this inclusive information, I want to take a music break. And when we come back on the other side of that music break, we'll get into guideline number five. And if we have a call or two, we'll take that. You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Tag Harmon tonight. Brother Yusuf is uh, dealing with family emergencies. And his birthday was just a couple of days ago, so wish him happy birthday and uh, set up some goodbyes and prayers for his family. We're at abolitiontoday.org. Our archives are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can learn about this anytime you feel like it. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. You know, we all think that slavery ended after the Civil War with the 13th Amendment. Not true. We just put walls around it. Check this out. Leave your comments. Ding the bell. Share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel. 13th Amendment. We've been talking about the 12th Amendment, how that might uh, lead to, uh, geez, an absolute screaming, flaming disaster this this fall and winter. Um, and, and, I mean, it could get really, really ugly. Uh, but the 13th Amendment was the amendment that ended slavery in the United States. And everybody talks about it like, hey, it ended slavery. Isn't that cool? Well, it didn't end slavery. The 13th Amendment did not end slavery. It narrowed it. It said that you may only have slaves in the United States, enslaved persons, if it is done under the color of law. If 
if a person is convicted of a crime, then the state may choose to sell them into slavery. You don't believe me? Look up the 13th Amendment. It's right there. So as a result of this, for, you know, a hundred and some odd years, I think the 13th Amendment was ratified in the, in the mid to late 1870s. And uh, as a result of this, what we have is prison labor. And you've got a whole bunch of for-profit corporations who've jumped in on this. Hey, you know, it's like, these are the modern-day plantation owners. They are running slavery enterprises. Now, this does not happen in any other civilized country in the world, any other developed country in the world. But it does happen here. And it's one of the reasons that while we are 4% of the world's population, we have 20% of the world's prisoners. Probably three-quarters of those prisoners are there because, hey, it's slave labor. Let's make the most of this. I find it interesting that we have 20% of the world's deaths from COVID, too. Uh, I was looking at those numbers yesterday, and somebody was like, oh, yeah, we're 4% of the world's population, 4.5% of the world's population. We have 20% of the world's COVID deaths. And I thought, well, that's interesting. We also have 20% of the world's prisoners. And uh, so, you know... Here we are. But anyhow, the University of Florida, day before yesterday, announced that they will no longer use slave labor. In 2020, the University of Florida has relied on prison uh, and jail inmates to provide farm labor. Uh, this is uh, from a press release, actually. It's a statement by President Ken Fuchs uh, of the University of Florida. Uh, the title of his statement was Another Step Toward Positive Change Against Racism. He's noting that most of the people who are imprisoned and then sent out for slave labor are people of color, uh, African Americans and, and Hispanics principally. He said there are agricultural operations where the, United, where, where the University of Florida has relied on prison and jail inmates to provide farm labor. The symbolism of inmate labor is incompatible with our university and its principles and therefore this practice will end. Now, in Florida, it's literally slave labor. I mean, you're, you, the, the people doing the work don't get anything. In California, they might get a little bit, you know, a dollar an hour, 50 cents an hour. In many states, it's basically, uh, you know, just pennies on the dollar. So it's slave labor, but they have this little thin veneer, this kind of... Uh, Stain, you know, this this, uh, this this very thin layer over the top saying, oh, no, no, this is capitalism. We're paying them. Right. One of the uh, companies in this space, one of the corporations in this space, and one of their uh, promotions for, you know, buy our stock, described uh, the detained immigrants. This is one of the companies that has built, uh, you know, because they are detained under color of law as well. So they are subject to slavery or enslavement in the United States. Uh, they described the people in their prison paid for by you and me to the tune of as much as $700 per day as, quote, a readily available captive labor force. And we've got corporations using prison labor all over the country, not just state governments, not just state universities. It's just my boss, my boss. Cease to agitate, we will, when the slave whips found his steel. 
cut this earthly ground mm-hmm. When no more hounds thirst for blood Scouring the thorny Georgian woods mm-hmm. When no more a mother's pleading prayer Quivers on the southern Number five says, 
determination as to whether slavery exists. Now, this is key, right? This is the point where you're supposed to go, is it slavery? So let's go here and state that reason. The exercise of any or all of the powers attached to the right of ownership, just considered, shall provide evidence of slavery. In as so far as they demonstrate control over a person tantamount to possession. We've seen that throughout all of this, right? It's the key thing to demonstrate control over a person tantamount to possession. And it doesn't require force. No, it does not require and it doesn't say that it requires force. Right. Accordingly, in determining whether slavery exists in a given case, it is necessary to examine the particular circumstances, asking whether powers attached to the right of ownership are being exercised, so as to demonstrate control of a person tantamount to their possession. In evaluating the particular circumstances to determine whether slavery exists, references should be made to the substance and not simply to the form of the relationship in question. The substance of the relationship should be determined by investigating whether, in fact, there has been an exercise of one or more of the powers attached to the right of ownership. This will, uh, this will include a determination as to whether control tantamount to possession is present. Man, uh, that is pretty clear. The 13th Amendment codifies it, says it right there, except the person is duly convicted, right? So now you become property. And then what happens when you get in? You're a number now, right? You don't even have the rights of the citizen. Uh, anybody else that has, you don't have them while you're in the prisons. You don't even get them while you, when you get out of the prison. You leave without your rights and may never get them back again, right? And control is absolute. We're talking about a prison. And, you know, the problem is the cunning of the slaver class. When they decided to mix their criminal justice with their slave trade, uh, they left everybody confused. Because how are we supposed to know who's actually guilty and who's not? How are we supposed to know uh, if that person broke a law, then he deserves to be in jail. But the law's unjust, <laughs> you know? Yep. They knew exactly what they were doing. I was told today by a brother where they was talking about, you know, how are we going to replace the system if we take the system apart? What do you do to replace it? Like, why would you want to replace a crime against humanity? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who, yeah. who wants to do that? Yeah. And that, that's the, the mindset of the slaver class. We can't lose this money. It's too big to fail. If it fails, look what happened in Willisie County with the prisons out there in Texas. You know what I mean? The whole county went bankrupt. Could you imagine if the if uh, Colorado's prison system failed, you know how many counties depend on those prison systems? In Arizona, in California, man, we had forest fires that would burn down to the ground, wouldn't we? Yes, I think we clearly have shown here that uh, what is known as mass incarceration in the United States it fits all of the guidelines required uh, in order to determine if slavery exists, because there is certainly control over a person tantamount to possession. Not even tantamount, it literally in writing says it. Ex slavery is abolished except for prisoners who be convicted. Well, to, to connect it right back up to this uh, how article that, you know, I've been uh, peeping out a little bit and, and drawing from uh, in, in connection to our broader discussion around slavery and definition, it points toward, and so 
case law, you know, we were just, of course, talking a bit about the, you know, the, the concept and the realities of jailhouse lawyers and how critical and crucial that history is, that those, those who function in, in that way and, and who are able to share that, that uh, knowledge base around uh, law and, and how, how to uh, make filings and, and how to do all the necessary legal work, which, of course, is, is, is just thrown at uh, those of us who, who find ourselves on the inside at every turn. And so um, this is one of these cases uh, if we're thinking about case law, Ruffin versus Commonwealth yes. out of Virginia, that that it, it arises a great deal in, in in those discourses. You know, from a uh, from a jailhouse lawyer perspective, those who are focused on questions of prison slavery and how that um, impacts the experience of those who are uh, designated as enslaved under under these kinds of uh, under this kind of legalese. So it quotes it by saying, the use instead of language that treated slavery, this is talking about the exception clause, the use instead of language that treated slavery and involuntary servitude together conveyed to the ordinary citizen that the amendment allowed both of them as punishment for crime. And so then it's pointing to a recent example of after, uh, after the 13th Amendment, as you pointed out, you know, and, and have uh, on many occasions, the, the drastic uh, shape of the reshaping and recomposition of the incarcerated population, state after state, you know, you pointed towards South Carolina, which is, of course, a clear cut example, and there are many others. And so here we're talking about Virginia, 1871, and it says, uh, the Virginia Supreme Court accepted that view in 1871 when it characterized a felony prisoner as, quote, the slave of the state. And then um, there it, it cites Ruffin versus Commonwealth. So just the, the stark, the starkness of that language in 1871 should help us to see that, you know, across what is pointed toward as this major barrier, this major uh, moment of distinction, uh, there are certainly other questions involved as far as what that meant with respect to slavery and whether or not it could still continue in the United States. They knew exactly where they were going with <clears throat> the Ruffin versus Commonwealth, which is like six years after the uh, 13th Amendment had been ratified by a sufficient number of states. So you're only six years away from it now. You're literally talking about it, right? It's not in way past memory. That was what they were focusing on. Why, why do we need to do this? Because what are they? Slaves of the state. And convict leasing was the vehicle that actually made that happen. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the Juneteenth conversation too much right now because time is still short for us. Uh, but I, I'll say this much. When General Granger came to Galveston, Texas in 1865, talking about General Order Number 3, y'all, all the Negroes is free, y'all. Only a year later, not even a year, just months later, Texas began convict leasing in 1867 with the railroads and the mines. And then in 20, I think it was 2018, when they found mass graves in Sugarland, Texas, among other places, of convicts who had been literally worked to death and thrown into mass graves. 
in Texas. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the next, uh, as much of this as we can. I wanna, I'm going to speed through a lot of this, all right? So, number six, guideline number six, expropriation. Ordinarily, exclusion from expropriation or security of holding would be deemed a power attaching to the right of ownership. However, as the state generally does not support a property right in persons, a negative obligation against the state generally no longer exists. Period. I just want to say for the record, that doesn't apply to the United States. We're the only nation that actually has slavery as part of our Constitution. However, the state has that minimum positive obligation to bring about the end of either the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. The state may have a further positive obligation with regard to the prohibition against slavery on the basis of domestic law as well as regional or international instruments. So it's basically saying that the state is responsible for ending this within their borders, that you're supposed to stand against this, and that it is uh, uh, not generally that the state is the one actually doing it. But in America, that is exactly how it is, and it's spreading across the globe, as we know. Guideline number seven, terminology. The term slavery has often been utilized to describe circumstances that go beyond the legal definition as established by the 1926 Slavery Convention. In law, only slavery and institutions and practices similar to slavery, which is often abbreviated to practices similar to slavery, have standing and are defined in international law via the 1926 Slavery Convention and the 1956 Supplementary Convention. So only those things in law, slavery, institutions, practices similar to slavery. Those are what's included. Guideline number eight, distinctions between slavery and forced labor. This is where my brother Dennis Spiebel said that there were some particular issues. So let's see. The 1926 Slavery Convention recognizes that forced labor can develop into conditions analogous to slavery. Although forced or compulsory labor is defined by the 1934 Slavery Convention as all works or services which is exacted from any person under the menace or any penalty and for which she said, for which the said person has not offered himself voluntarily. Forced labor will only amount to slavery when, in substance, there is the exercise of the powers attaching to the right of ownership. Slavery will not be present in cases of forced labor where the control over a person tantamount to possession is not present. We've already shown that that's present at all times. Even if they tell you, we'll give you time off if you work, that's coercion. It doesn't have to be violence. It can be pure coercion. And who would say no to that? If they tell you we'll do it, we'll, we'll give you 20 cents an hour. If you're in an environment where no cents an hour is the usual and there's an economy, 20 cents is a fortune. I remember a brother telling me that a dollar a day was good money. So it's all about the uh, economics of the situation you're dealing with and supply and demand. So sometimes, you know, they'll happily take those pennies because there's nothing else. And somebody got to buy everything that needs to be bought. Right. And another of those terms that was was dropped in that context 
was deception. And there certainly would seem to be an evidence of a whole lot of that going on with regard to prison slavery. Yeah, just beyond just the prison slavery, just with the general public and the education. And now with the bills they're trying to put forth to prevent the actual truth of slavery in America being taught. So that right there is a part of a grand deception. The very idea that we're just still here celebrating Juneteenth coming up, but one of three black men are expected to go to prison is in itself part of that entire deception. How did you fool all of those people with the stats right in their face? You know, how did you do that? It takes a lot of propaganda to get to that. 400 years of it at least. All right, guideline number nine, distinction between slavery and institutions and practices similar to slavery. Article 1 of the 1956 Supplementary Convention recognizes that the institutions and practices similar to slavery, that is, debt bondage, we see that happening right now with these fines and fees, which are violations of the Eighth Amendment, serfdom, servile marriages, or child exploitation, may be covered by the definitions of slavery contained in Article 1 of the Slavery Convention of 1926. The distinction between these servile statuses as defined by the 1956 Supplementary Convention in the following terms, and slavery is that slavery where in substance there is the exercise of the powers attaching to the right of ownership. It should be emphasized that slavery will only be present in cases such as institutions and practices similar to slavery, where control over a person tantamount to possession is present. Man, they're driving at home, right? Y'all got to have it. I don't care what it is. If it's, yeah. if it's not there, it's not slavery. Right. The, the following are conventional servitudes set out by the 1956 Supplementary Convention of, on the Abolition of Slavery, the slave trade, and institutions and practices similar to slavery. A, debt bondage. That is to say, the status or condition arising from a pledge by a debtor of his personal service or those of a person under his control as security for a debt, if the value of those services are reasonably assessed, is not applied towards the liquidation of the debt or the length and nature of those services are not respectively limited and defined. Man, that is Virginia's, not Virginia, Vermont state constitution right there. Right now, in their state constitution, it literally says you can be a slave for debts and the like. That's a violation of something that we signed on to right there in their constitution. And Vermont brags about being the first one to abolish slavery. But the truth is they were the first ones to codify it within their state constitution. It's there right now. Shout out to Brother Mark Hughes, who is leading the charge and has the legislation going through the House right now in Vermont to remove that offensive language and end slavery in Vermont for the first time. Not 1777. In 2022, they're going to do it. All right. Uh, B, serfdom, that is to say, the condition or status of a tenant who is by law, custom, or agreement bound to live and labor on land belonging to another person and to render some determinate service to such other person, whether for reward or not, and is not free to change his status. And then C, any institution or practice whereby I, or number one, a woman without the right to refuse is promised or given in marriage or on payment or of a consideration of money or in kind to her parents, guardian, family, or any other person or group or. Two, the husband of a woman, his family, or his clan has the right to transfer her to another person for value 
received or otherwise. Or three, a woman on the death of her husband is liable to be inherited by another person. And then D, any institution or practice whereby a child or young person under the age of 18 years is delivered by either or both of his natural parents or by his guardian to another person, whether for reward or not, with a view to the exploitation of the child or young person or of his labor. I'm starting to think about our youth detention facilities when I hear that. And these adoption agencies that are directly connected to the immigration facilities like that. And even the uh, the group homes where people take on these kids, not because they love kids, but because they love that check that comes in every month. You know, and the kids are growing up in hell. Guideline number 10. When slavery and lesser servitude are present. Accepting that both slavery and lesser servitude, such as forced labor or institutions and practices similar to slavery, may be found in substance in a particular circumstance, the manner to proceed is by making reference to that substance and not simply to the form. And first ask whether there has been an exercise of the powers attaching to the right of ownership. If so, then the more serious offense of slavery is present. Reference should be made to the legal definition of the lesser servitude, which corresponds in substance to the particular circumstance in question. And this was adopted on March the 3rd, 2012, by the members of the Research Network on the Legal Parameters of Slavery. And that is it right there. We went through the whole thing tonight. Yes, That's yes. pretty awesome. So now you know. <clears throat> you ain't got to guess no more. Now you know. And the key words, over and over again, man, they, they drove them home. Having established control, tantamount to possession. That's the key. So it starts with possession. Do you think you own me? Mm. Do you control my life? Do I get to make a choice at any point? Because if I don't have any choice, then that is tantamount to control over a person, right? Uh, tantamount to possession. Possession, ownership, control, and just to to continue to draw some of the connections that uh, are to be drawn from this uh, Scott Howe article referenced um, in uh, Sister Ballard's work, which um, recently published, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, Marcia Ballard's yes. text. So, and uh, it's it's right here in the in the flesh. Uh, 2020, it was published of uh, Sister Ballard's Enslavement as Punishment. And part of what was being pointed toward um, in one of the more recent clips, which was discussing some of some of the examples of, uh, of slavery, was discussing Florida specifically. And how um, also points toward Florida as far as the convict leasing is concerned out of Florida and um, the particular direction that Florida went in 1869 um, on page uh, 1010 of uh, Scott Howe's work. It it states uh, in 1869, Florida leased half of its prisoners and Florida convicts soon found themselves working in railroad construction and in swampy turpentine forests infested with alligators and serpents. And that's um, supported by uh, none other than uh, Mancini's work, which um, is 
reference heavily uh, here on uh, abolition today, as well as um, J.C. Powell's The American Siberia for 14 Years Experience in a Southern Convict Camp, uh, published in uh, originally in 1891. So it, it, it goes on to just outline some of the uh, some of the particular horrors experienced in, in Florida in this context. It also certainly, uh, you know, is addressed towards a number of other states where um, the, this prison slavery has been grievously um, uh, enacted. Uh, it points another another uh, case that is highly cited is Ruiz versus Estelle, um, another one that, for example, in, in uh, Mumia's classic, uh, jailhouse lawyers, uh, that is that is certainly cited there, as well as uh, uh, Dennis Child's work, um, which is called um, Slaves of the State, which goes into this question, which also cites uh, the Ruffin case, which was mentioned earlier. So uh, another important work that's demonstrating as clearly as possible that uh, here here in the wake of this of this particular amendment and its exception clause, all of these, you know, ongoing instances of, of enslavement uh, behind imprisonment. And as as uh, this was Garrison, right, who referred to slavery as uh, the, the crime of crimes, that crime of crimes. Well, we got about nine minutes or so left that we can cover some ground on. And I still got a track that I want to play. I think we did a real good job tonight bringing this to the organizers' attention. If we're going to end slavery, we need to be on the same page. And this is the legal definition of slavery. This is how it's defined. These are all the parameters that are required, and we covered them all. And it's very, very certain that we, uh, we fit the description here in the United States for prison profit police. Uh, I want to show you through this next audio clip exactly what we're dealing with, what the opposition is about. And it'll be of course, followed by some music, and how they're going to kill us. Remember, Wilmington is the place where white supremacists overthrew the government and took over and killed the black established officials and citizens. That'll be followed by It Could Have Been Me from Holly Mears. Uh, when we come back on the other side, we'll thank our sponsors and make our closing comments and then get into our final segment, which is the Bridging the Gap segment, uh, put together this week. Uh, brother Tack, <laughs> you're listening to Abolition Today. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 Today. The turnout of this story. Today. Tonight, three Wilmington, North Carolina police officers have been fired after a routine audit of a patrol car camera uncovered what authorities describe as extremely racist comments toward African Americans. Here's CBS's Jeff Pegues. An internal probe by the Wilmington Police Department reveals hate-filled conversations with three veteran officers. Officer Kevin Piner is heard telling Corporal Jesse Moore that the protests would soon lead to a civil war and that he is ready. He goes on to tell Moore that he was going to buy a new assault rifle and soon we are just going to go out and start slaughtering them expletive N-words. Piner says a civil war is needed to wipe them off the expletive map. That'll put them back about four or five generations. Later, during a phone call with Piner, Moore refers to a woman he arrested as the N-word and says she needed a bullet in her head right then. 
Donnie Williams is the department's new police chief. He fired the officers on his first day. When you talk about killing people and generations of people, that is disturbing. According to investigators, the officers blame their comments on the stress of today's climate in law enforcement. CBS News has reached out to the police union and the three officers for comment. So far, they haven't responded. Jeff Begay, CBS News, Washington. Students in Ohio, 200 yards away, shut down by a nameless fire one early day in May. Some people cried out angry, you should have shot more of them down. But you can't bury youth, my friend, youth grows the whole world around. It could have been me, but instead it was you. So I'll keep doing the work you were doing as if I were too. I'll be a student of life, a singer of songs, a farmer of food, and the writer of wrongs. It could have been me, but instead it was you. And it may be me, dear sisters and brothers, before we are through. But if you can die for freedom, 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 if you can die for freedom, I can too. The junta took the fingers from Victor Hart's hands. They said to the gentle poet, play your guitar now if you can. Well, Victor started singing until they shot his body down. You can kill a man, but not a song when it's sung the whole world around. And it could have been me. But instead it was you So I'll keep doing the work you were doing As if I were too I'll be a student of life A singer of songs A farmer of food And a writer of wrong It could have been me But instead it was you And it may be me, dear sisters and brothers, before we are through. But if you can sing for freedom, 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 freedom. If you can sing for freedom, I can too. A woman in the jungle, so many wars away. Studies late into the night, defends a village in the day. Although her skin is golden, like mine will never be. Her song is heard, and I know the words, and I'll sing them till she is free. It could have been me, but instead it was you. So I'll keep doing the work you were doing as if I were too. I'll be a student of life, a singer of songs, a farmer of food, and the writer of wrong. It could have been me, but instead it was you. And it may be me, dear sisters and brothers, before we are through. But if you can work 
Abolition. All right, that was the Wilmington North Police, North Carolina Police call for a race war and talking about how they're going to slaughter all of us niggas. Uh, that was followed by It Could Have Been Me from Holly Neal. I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. With us here at Abolition Today, myself and Tag Harmon. Thank you, Tag, for assisting again. Oh, brother. Without question, thank you, Abolitionist Center here. This is Paul Cuffey, Abolitionist Center. Thank you to Abolition Today, to the Black Talk Radio Network, to uh, uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Mm-hmm. Who I know oh, yeah. There's a lot of sponsors you want to call them out. Yeah, yeah. So we got Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. I am we Ubuntu. Uh, Saima. Saima Urge. Sema Urge, pardon. Sema Urge. Uh, as was mentioned, Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and as was also mentioned, Black Talk Radio Network. Word. Uh, that's our, our friends, our partners, our sponsors that make this possible and give us the opportunity to spread this information as far and wide as we can. We could have been anywhere, uh, but you're here with, you're here with us today, and we really appreciate it. Hopefully, we provided the information in the way we had hoped. Uh, that you can use, and that is regarding the Bellagio Harbor guidelines of the legal parameters of slavery. And don't forget what the key word is, the key words of it, and that is control, tantamount to possession. You have to establish control, tantamount to possession. So it begins with control. All right, we're going to close this out with our Bridging the Gap segment this week is going to be William Lloyd Garrison's uh, preface of Frederick Douglass's narrative in life of Frederick Douglass, right? Um, so it'll be someone reading on behalf of William Lloyd Garrison, and that's going to be followed by the Burning Spear. Uh, remember to subscribe to our YouTube page, youtube.com, Abolition Today, for all the news, information, and music you heard on the program today. Show some love to the artists. They deserve it, right? And Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms and a simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. Also, remember to join the movement at Abolish Slavery, abolishslavery.us, to become a part of the solution. We'll be back next week and bring you another masterclass on slavery abolition. Until then, think about abolition today. Abolition. Abolition. This narrative contains many affecting incidents, many passages of great eloquence and power. But I think the most thrilling one of them all is the description Douglas gives of his feelings as he stood soliloquizing respecting his fate and the chances of his one day being a free man on the banks of the Chesapeake Bay, viewing the receding vessels as they flew with their white wings before the breeze and apostrophizing them as animated by the living spirit of freedom. Who can read that passage and be insensible to its pathos and sublimity? Compressed into it is a whole Alexandrian library of thought, feeling, and sentiment. All that can, all that need be urged in the form of expostulation, entreaty, rebuke against that crime of crimes, making man the property of his fellow man. Oh, how accursed is that system, which entombs the godlike mind of man, defaces the divine image, reduces those who by creation were crowned with glory and honor to a level with four-footed beasts. 
and exalt the dealer in human flesh above all that is called God. Why should its existence be prolonged one hour? Is it not evil, only evil, and that continually? What does its presence imply but the absence of all fear of God, all regard for man on the part of the people of the United States? Heaven speed its eternal overthrow. So profoundly ignorant of the nature of slavery are many persons that they are stubbornly incredulous whenever they read or listen to any recital of the cruelties which are daily inflicted on its victims. They do not deny that the slaves are held as property, but that terrible fact seems to convey to their minds no idea of injustice, exposure to outrage or savage barbarity. Tell them of cruel scourgings, of mutilations and brandings, of scenes of pollution and blood, of the banishment of all light and knowledge, and they affect to be greatly indignant at such enormous exaggerations, such wholesale misstatements, such abominable libels on the character of the southern planters, as if all these direful outrages were not the natural results of slavery, as if it were less cruel to reduce a human being to the condition of a thing than to give him a severe flagellation, or to deprive him of necessary food and clothing. As if whips, chains, thumb screws, paddles, bloodhounds, overseers, drivers, patrols were not all indispensable to keep the slaves down and to give protection to their ruthless oppressors. As if, when the marriage institution is abolished, concubinage, adultery, and incest must not necessarily abound. When all the rights of humanity are annihilated, any barrier remains to protect the victim from the fury of the spoiler. When absolute power is assumed over life and liberty, it will not be wielded with destructive sway. Skeptics of this character abound in society. In some few instances, their incredulity arises from a want of reflection, but generally it indicates a hatred of the light, a desire to shield slavery from the assaults of its foes, a contempt of the colored race, whether bond or free. Such will try to discredit the shocking tales of slaveholding cruelty which are recorded in this truthful narrative, but they will labor in vain. Mr. Douglas has frankly disclosed the place of his birth, the names of those who claimed ownership in his body and soul, and the names also of those who committed the crimes which he has alleged against them. His statements, therefore, may easily be disproved if they are untrue. In the course of his narrative... He relates two instances of murderous cruelty, in one of which a planter deliberately shot a slave belonging to a neighboring plantation who had unintentionally gotten within his lordly domain in quest of fish. And in the other, an overseer blew out the brains of a slave who had fled to a stream of water to escape a bloody scourging. Mr. Douglas states that in neither of these instances was anything done by way of legal arrest or judicial investigation. The Baltimore American of March 17, 1845, relates a similar case of atrocity perpetrated with similar impunity as follows. Shooting a slave. We learn upon the authority of a letter from Charles County, Maryland, received by a gentleman of this city, that a young man named Matthews, a nephew of General Matthews, and whose father it is believed holds an office at Washington, killed one of the slaves upon his father's farm by shooting him. The letter states that young Matthews had been left in charge of the farm, that he gave an order to the servant, which was disobeyed. When he proceeded to the house, obtained a gun, and returning, shot the servant. He immediately, the letter continues, fled to his father's residence, where he still remains unmolested. End of quote. 
Let it never be forgotten that no slaveholder or overseer can be convicted of any outrage perpetrated on the person of a slave, however diabolical it may be, on the testimony of colored witnesses, whether bond or free. By the slave code, they are judged to be as incompetent to testify against a white man as though they were indeed a part of the brute creation. Hence, there is no legal protection in fact, whatever there may be in form, for the slave population. And any amount of cruelty may be inflicted on them with impunity. Is it possible for the human mind to conceive of a more horrible state of society? The effect of a religious profession on the conduct of southern masters is vividly described in the following narrative and shown to be anything but salutary. In the nature of the case, it must be in the highest degree pernicious. The testimony of Mr. Douglas on this point is sustained by a cloud of witnesses whose veracity is unimpeachable. A slaveholder's profession of Christianity is a palpable imposture. He is a felon of the highest grade. He is a man-stealer. It is of no importance what you put in the other scale. Reader, are you with the man-stealers in sympathy and purpose, or on the side of their downtrodden victims? If with the former, then you are the foe of God and man. If with the latter, what are you prepared to do and dare in their behalf? Be faithful, be vigilant, be untiring in your efforts to break every yoke and let the oppressed go free. Come what may, cost what it may, inscribe on the banner which you unfurl to the breeze as your religious and political motto, no compromise with slavery, no union with slaveholders. William Lloyd Garrison, Boston, May 1st, 
Abolition. 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 Today. Abolition. Today. Abolition. 